So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, one verse of Scripture, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. For a few moments, I want to talk about some good, good news. Amen? The Bible lets me know the book, uh, 20, 20 to 30 years after Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended back to the right hand of God the Father, a Jewish disciple by the name of Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a book. And that book is what I read of tonight. It is the book, the Bible said, the, the gospel according to Matthew. But nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the four gospels, do we ever find one single word that was ever spoken by Matthew himself. Not one word does Matthew ever speak. Yet his gospel gives us the words and the works of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham himself. Matthew did not write this gospel to tell us about him. He wrote the gospel to tell us about the Savior of the world. He wrote the gospel to give us hope in a hopeless world. And he wrote the gospel, which is good news, to a bad news generation that needed the good news itself. Now, I'm sure there are many, many reasons as to why the Holy Spirit led uh, Matthew to write the gospel, but I want to share at least three reasons tonight why, I, why he wrote it. First of all, Matthew was a bridge builder. He introduced to us a new book, and that new book is the gospel according to Matthew. If a Bible reader was in the Old Testament and he was reading the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the New Testament, and then if there were no gospel and he ended up coming over reading the book of Romans or the book of Acts or, or, or Titus or something, he would be confused as a termite in a yo-yo because he's going, what happened? The church was left, the, 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 the Old Testament closed here, had it opened up over here uh, in Rome itself. But Matthew's gospel is a bridge that literally bridges the Old Testament over to the New Testament. And the theme of the Old Testament uh, is in Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generation of Adam. The Old Testament is a history of the Adam family. I didn't say Adam's family on TV. But it's a history of Adam, the Adam family. And it's a sad history uh, to say the least. God created man in his own image. And, uh, and because of that, uh, a man sinned, thus defiling and deforming the image of the Almighty God. Then man brought forth children, the Bible said, in his own likeness after his own image. So again, the children proved to be as sinful as the parents. I'm as sinful by nature and by nature and birth as Adam and Eve were themselves. And that sin goes down from generation to generation uh, to generation. So the children then proved uh, uh, to be as sinful just like their parents. And no matter what you read or where you read in the Old Testament, you're going to run into sinners and you're going to run into sin. You're going to run into people that broke the heart of God, broke the commands of God. You're going to see sin and sinners all throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Thus is the reason they had the sacrificial system. When Adam and Eve sinned originally, they hid themselves with fig leaves. Now that's not going to cut it with God. Man's righteousness, man's works are filthy rags. So God apparently instituted the sacrificial system to Adam. And the blood of the, the, the animal that was slain was typical uh, foreshadowing the blood that Jesus one day would shadow. And the skins, uh, the animal skins that were placed upon their neck in this was a type of the covering of Christ that was to come.
So I believe that it was God who taught Adam and Eve all about sacrifice. So you run into sin and sinners all through the Old Testament, and then you come to the, uh, the law that was given, uh, the law of Moses, and then the sacrificial system was given, and the blood, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and sprinkle the blood of the animal the right way upon the altar of God, the mercy seat. So the sins were covered, but yet they themselves were still sinful. But when Jesus died upon the cross, thank God he don't cover our sins. They are removed, they're gone as far as the east is from the west itself. So once again, the New Testament is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament was the book, if you will, of the generation of Adam, sin and sinfulness. But the New Testament is the book of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and he brings life. And thank God we know Jesus was the last Adam and he came to earth to save the generation of Adam. And that includes you and that includes me as well. Thank God uh, we were made sinners by birth, but we can be made righteous uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lord himself. And I'm grateful that by we had no choice of becoming a sinner. Matter of fact, nobody gave me a choice whether or not I wanted to be born, and you did not have that choice either. Our moms and our dads and God made that decision. But we do have a choice as to whether or not we're going to stay in sin and rob God of his glory and deform and defy the image of God. We have a choice. I'd accept Jesus. And because of that, pray everyone in this room have done that. We have been born again, and now we bring forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness and translated us into his beautiful, beautiful life. Now, when you read the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, the genealogy of Adam, it seems like a death bell in a funeral home. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and he died. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and he died. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and he died. Death, 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 death. The Old Testament illustrates the truth that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. When you come to the New Testament, the genealogy does not say anything about death. It talks about birth and it talks about life. The message of the New Testament is the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ the Lord, Adam ushered in death in the Old Testament genealogy, but Jesus ushered in life in the New Testament genealogy. The Old Testament is a book of promise, and the New Testament is a book of fulfillment. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are many, many promises in the New Testament, but keeping the context tonight, I'm referring to an emphasis of each half of the Bible. Beginning in Genesis 3.15, God promised a Redeemer, and God fulfilled that promise through the coming of Jesus Christ the Lord. Notice, if you will, one of, fulfilled is one of the key words uh, that you find mentioned in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It's mentioned 15 times. Jesus fulfilled what was promised in the Old Testament. I thank God I'm, still, I'm not still looking. It has been fulfilled. In reality, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Now, the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is to show that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah. His birth in Bethlehem, it fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. When Jesus Christ was taken into Egypt by Joseph and Mary, 
It was prophesied by Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Joseph and the family returned from Egypt and went into Nazareth, you will notice there it fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies as well. Matthew used at least 129 quotations or allusions of the Old Testament. Think about that. 28 chapters, 129 quotations or allusions to the Old Testament in his gospel writing alone. He wrote primarily to the Jewish readers to show them that Jesus Christ was indeed the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. Promise given, promise fulfilled. But I want to say this, make a caveat. The same Old Testament that prophesied the first coming talked about the second. They waited a long time for the first coming of the Lord. We waited a long time for the second, but delay is not denial. I'm sitting on G, waiting on O, and I hope you are as well. We're ready to go for the glory of God. So once again, Matthew used the Old Testament to prove his point, but the people rejected him. Well, Matthew was used as a bridge builder. He introduced a new book, but secondly, uh, he was a biographer. He He introduced a new king. Now, now, none of the four Gospels is a biography in the sense that we would know a biography today. As a matter of fact, John in his Gospel said that if the books of the world could not contain everything that Jesus Christ said or did, there's no way to write a bi- biography of Jesus Christ the Lord. But notice, if you will, there are many details in his early life that was not recorded in the Scripture. We know very little about Jesus as a baby. We know very little about him as a little boy. We know very little about him as a teenager. But we do understand the ministry that he had upon this earth. And the Bible, let's know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give us enough of his life, his words, his teachings, his miracles, his will, that we know who he is. And there is not one of the four gospels that's complete in everything that we need to know. That's why there are four of them. He gives us four different snapshots of who this Jesus is so we can learn of him, know of him, and embrace him and follow him as well. Now we know that the gospel of Matthew is written primarily for the Jews and referred to him as the gospel of the king. Mark referred, wrote primarily to the Romans of that day and referred to him as a gospel of the servant. And then Luke, uh, he basically uh, was writing to the Greeks of that age and referred to him as the perfect son of man. But then John writes the gospel, basically a universal gospel, if you will, and portrays Jesus Christ as simply uh, as the son of the living God. Once again, not one of the four gospels gives us a total picture of who Jesus is. But when we put the four of them together, we have a brilliant snapshot of the king of all kings of a perfect man, of the basically, uh, 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 of the son of God, and we see him as a mighty servant. Can you imagine a God who serves? Talk about humility. Most of the time when we think of a deity or a God, they're up here and we bow down to them. But when God became flesh, how it must have broke the heart of Jesus when he took a basin and a towel and he got on his knees and slid the, the, the sandals off of his disciples and began to wash in their feet. That was the lowest place. That was the low, lowliest act that a, that a servant could do. Jesus said, I've not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. A God who serves? 
And even though he washed their raunchy, dirty, nasty feet, he knew when he was washing the feet of Jesus that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that when he was washing the feet of Peter that Peter was going to deny him. But what I learned from that is the grace of God and the love of God for people. I see that in the gospel. And because of what he's done and what he's done in me, I can emulate that same thing. We can emulate that to people we come in contact with. They don't care if we're high and lofty. And there's another thing. There's a lot of people in Christianity today that are very egotistical, very narcissistic. When I was in Africa the last time, I had my briefcase taken off the class. I taught all day long and, and, and talking to the, the Africans half the night with grading papers and just wanting to pick your head. I was wore out for two weeks in a row. They wanted to carry my briefcase. I said, no, no, I got it. They wanted to carry my books. I said, no, no, I do it. Let me carry yours. And they couldn't understand it. Why do you do this? You're a white man. We're Africans. I said, what's that got to do with anything? But in our culture, we lay down on the ground in the mud and our pastors walk over us so they will not get their shoes dirty. So it ain't happened here, big boy. Not happening here. And that's what happens so many times. Preachers and Christians can get the big head. You're here to serve me. Let me tell you, that's not it. Jesus Christ came to serve. And we serve a humble God when he came upon the face of this earth. Now, as a tax collector, Matthew was accustomed to keeping very good systematic records. We know that. And because of that, he gives us a beautiful organized account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ the Lord. The book can be divided into 10 sections which doing and teaching alternate. Jesus was doing, then he was a teaching. Then he was doing, and then he was teaching. Most of these teaching sessions end uh, with something when Jesus uh, had ended these sayings or a similar transitional statement is seen during that time. With that being said, he recorded at least 20 specific miracles and six major messages in the book of Matthew. That's all. 20 Specific miracles and six major messages. We don't have the total bibliography of Jesus in that, but we've got enough that Matthew gave us with John and Luke and Mark to know who this Savior really is. I'm grateful for the Word of God. Notice also at least 60% of the book of Matthew uh, is a book that focuses on the teaching of Jesus Christ. Remember, the focus of Matthew was upon the kingdom of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation was the kingdom upon the earth. Remember what the scripture says? And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, many of the people living the day of Jesus Christ, they were looking for a Messiah or a Savior to come that would set the Jews free from the Roman tyranny of that day. Much the same way that Moses was sent to set Israel free from the bondage and the servitude of Egypt itself. But the message of the kingdom was first preached by John the Baptist himself. And then Jesus preached the message uh, during the time that he had public ministry up on the face of the earth. And then Jesus sent out the 12 apostles uh, with the same message. However, the good news of the kingdom, uh, friend, is required a moral and a spiritual uh, reaction from the people and not simply an acceptance of a ruler or of a king. You see, Jesus came not to have a kingship upon the earth, that would take care of governments. He wanted to rule the heart. And this is where so many people, I think, miss Jesus. He wants to rule the heart. 
Jesus made it clear he had not come to overcome Rome. He had come to overcome, if you will, or transform the hearts and the lives of men and women that is stooped in sin and bound by disease of sin. And I'm grateful that's what we're still supposed to be doing. Not so much letting the government do what the church should be doing, but we as a people, he lives in us. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And one at a time, we go out and we win someone to Jesus and we watch that transformation. But I'm afraid, I'm afraid that we fail to do that today. We know we should do it. But do we do it? I do not say that to your chagrin or mine. I'm asking, do we duplicate the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the lives of people on a day-by-day basis? Uh, Jesus made it clear he didn't come to overcome Rome, but to transform hearts and lives of those who would put their trust in him. You remember when you were born again? You remember the radical change? Do you remember the joy? you remember the peace? you remember the excitement? You remember the, the feeling even. I hate to say that, but the feeling. I think it took me three weeks to really get saved because I talk myself out of it every day. But when I finally surrendered, said, okay, I accept you. I can't do anything else. Man, what a transformation. And I love to watch that happen in the lives of other people. How many of you ever led anybody to the Lord? Outside of your own salvation, wasn't that the greatest thing you've ever done? I mean, it's just something about leading somebody to Jesus Christ and watching the light click, watching the, watching the light bulb come on, go, wow, this thing is real. It's powerful. I never forget the, one of the guys I led to the Lord one time. His name was Martin. It just comes to mind. I had him in my car. I had a little, a little old Pinto. Remember the little Pinto cars? Not the horse, but the car. Had that thing jacked up in the back. Had Craiger mags on it. A Pinto now. Had the hog head painted black and had my, I mean, it, it was something else. I had, had lights underneath it, you know. I was cool before I knew what cool was. Had red shed carpet all in it. I mean, it was something. It was a, had a rebel flag in the back. I had those antennas on the top from a CB radio. I was the good Samaritan, you know, that type thing. But anyway, I kept my, my little glove box full of Bibles. And anybody thumbing, they're going to get a ride and, and they're going to get a Bible. And I led this guy to the Lord by the name of Martin. And I was a, I was a neophyte uh, in, in Christianity and, and, and learning people to the Lord. But I said, are you saved? Oh, yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Now, are you sure? You're, uh, where's the Lord? He's in my heart. Oh, my God. I feel him. I'm changed. Are you really, really? I about talked him out of it because I was not sure of my own self when I should have got out of the way and let the Lord do it. And, and God did. So I, I stopped at an old man's house and I was a Christian. I went and I said, Brother Bob, this man said he got saved. Would you see that he is? <laughs> I had to make sure because I didn't want the blood of that guy on my hands. But to watch, to watch, to watch, to watch people transformed by the power of God. It is amazing. And how in the last 40 some years, the scores of people I've watched and many I can still take you to the place and take you to the time where I saw the lights come on and the old sin go away and the power of God come in. It's phenomenal. Friend, we need to get back to soul winning, personal evangelism and letting the world know who we really are today. Well, I've got to hurry. Before he could enter the kingdom, Jesus endured sufferings of the cross. Matthew, again, was a bridge, bridge builder by giving us a new book. Uh, he was also called New Testament. He's a biographer. He introduced to us a new king. But thirdly, he gave us something else. That's the believer. He introduced a new people. And that's you and me, a new people. 
the new people I'm referring to is the church. Now, there's a lot of confusion as to what the church is. The church is not a man-made organization. A lot of people say, well, I joined the church, so I must be a Christian. Friend, you can join the Moose Lodge. It will not make you a moose. You can join the Lions Club. It will not make you a lion. A rat can jump in a bag of flour. It will not make it a biscuit. And you can join the church. It will not make you a Christian. You must be born again. We become a new people. With that being said, Matthew is the only gospel that makes reference to the word church. Two times he mentions the word church. The Greek word for church can be translated as a called out assembly. More times than not in the New Testament, uh, the word church usually has meaning to a local assembly rather than to a universal church at large. But understand the Old Testament, uh, God called the nation of Israel a called out people under Abraham. They were called a church in the wilderness, or Peter referred to them as a, or Stephen rather, referred to them as a church in the wilderness or a, uh, 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 an assembly uh, within the wilderness because they were a called out people, especially to the Almighty God. But the New Testament, the church is different people because it's made up of both Jews and Gentiles who have been birthed by the blood of Jesus Christ the Lord. I'm going to tell you, the same gospel that works right here, it works in the mountains. The same gospel works in the mountains. It, it, it works over uh, in, in Spain, in Africa, and anywhere else. You'll take, it works in India, doesn't it, brother? You, how, many, how many thousands, I bet, have you seen in your life have come to the Lord in your missions endeavor in India? And it's the same everywhere you go. The lights come on because the Lord is alive. And he confirms that word in the lives of individual people. The New Testament is different. Thank God Jew and Gentile make up the church. In the church, there are no racial distinctions. There is not male or female, bond or free, rich or poor, black or white, educated and uneducated. We're all one through the blood of Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, Matthew wrote primarily to the Jew, but he has a universal element that includes Gentiles. For instance, when Jesus was born, the wise men, the magi, they were Gentiles that came to bring gifts to Jesus Christ, Gentile people. We also know that according to the word of God, that uh, uh, you read and you find that uh, the uh, uh, Gentile queen of Sheba was praised for her willingness to make a long journey uh, to come and see the, to see the wisdom that they had to give. At a crisis time of the ministry of Jesus Christ, he turned about a prophecy uh, about the Gentiles in chapter 12 and verse 42. Even the parables that Jesus recorded or Matthew recorded about Jesus in, in Matthew indicates the blessings of the, the, the received from the Gentiles that the Jews refused to have. In other words, where the Jews refused Jesus, those blessings would fall upon the Gentiles of that day. When Jesus preached from the Mount of Olives, he said the message of the gospel was to go to all nations. That includes Jews and Gentiles alike. And then Jesus gave the great commission, which I refer to as the great reminder. And that is go into all the world, not just the Jewish world, but go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. So they were not only believing Jews. And when the church formed on the day of Pentecost, it was all Jewish believers or Jewish proselyte believers. In other words, a proselyte was someone uh, that would change from one's religion and accept Judaism. That's what they would do. But when the message of the gospel went to Samaria, now the Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile. They became Christians, washed the blood, and they became part of the church. 
And then later on, when Peter preached to Cornelius' house, we find that there the Gentiles became born again, and now the Gentiles are born again part of the church. So the church was made up of Jews, Jewish proselytes, and Gentiles alike. Why? There's no respecter with God. And the early Jewish church, they were so concerned because they said, wait a minute. Before these people can become Christians, they got to first of all become Jews before they become Christians. So the first business meeting they had in Acts chapter 15, they came to the conclusion, you don't have to come to Jew before you become a Christian. You just come to Jesus the way you are. If you think church membership is a hard day, you should have tried it back then. <laughs> you got to be circumcised before you join the church. That's, what, that's exactly what had happened. And they said, that's not what we need. It's a matter of the circumcision, not of the foreskin, but the matter of the circumcision of the heart. We belong unto him. Praise God for that. So once again, the church now is made up of Jew, of, uh, of proselytes, Jew, pro proselytes of the Jews, and then also of Gentiles itself. Now, when his book was read by the members of the early church, both Jews and Gentiles uh, settled the difference to create unity. Matthew also uh, made it clear that new people, the church must maintain a racial, social exclusiveness. It's not mentioned. Thank God in the Old Testament, you couldn't put a, a two different animals together. You couldn't wear two different pieces, a, a wool and silk together. It was all separated. But thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ, it makes us family. It makes us friends. It makes us unity. And there's a difference between being in unity and united. I don't want a united church. I want a church in unity. For it's for the church where we walk together in unity, the Lord commands the blessing. Here's the difference. If we had a choir and everybody's saying bass, that is united. But if we had bass, soprano, alto, and tenor, that's unity. And together it makes a beautiful harmony, a beautiful noise unto the Lord himself. If I'm seeing it, it's a noise. So again, faith in Christ makes believers one in the body of Christ, the church. Now Matthew's own expression, the Lord recorded in Matthew 9, 9. Think about this. Follow me. Matthew's a tax collector. Levi, he's a tax collector. Jesus walked by, follow me. What does Matthew do? He follows Jesus. Now, we think, well, that's a great story. No big deal. It's a big deal. And the reason being is because he was from Capernaum, and Capernaum had already rejected Jesus Christ. And now if Matthew accepted him and followed him, that means all of his friends are going to persecute him. All of his business associates are going to think something wrong with him. And he's going to have a price to pay simply because he listened to the word and obeyed, follow me. You see, following the Lord is more than one time trip down a church aisle. It's more than giving lip service to God. It's a selling out thing that my life is no longer mine. My life now belongs to Jesus Christ. Matthew's own experience is a beautiful example of the grace of God. His old name, Levi, means son of Alphaeus, but the new name, Matthew, means gift of God. And I think that his name commemorated the grace that worked in his life to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Remember, tax collectors were not people that other folk loved, especially the Jews. Tax collectors were hated by most people in Jewish society. Begin with, they were traitors to their own nation. They were Jewish people who were now working for the Roman government, taking money from their own skin, from their own relatives, from their own religious group. And sometimes the more money they got from the Jewish people, the more money Rome would pay them for doing it. 
So they were looked at as traitors. They were looked at as thieves along the way. They were considered thieves and traitors and they were constantly also in contact with Gentile people, Jews in contact with Gentile people, which means you guys are unclean. You guys are rubbing elbows with people you ought not be rubbing elbows with. I mean, you know, even Jesus said they were like harlots and sinners, but they said, you're a friend of publicans and sinners. But I want to tell you something about Matthew. He opened up his heart to Jesus. He became a new person. That was not an easy decision to make. How long did it take you to open up your heart to follow Jesus? And now if your heart is open, is it still wide open? Or do we sometimes, I gave you my heart, but I'm just going to give you a hunk of it, not all of it. He wants it all. And the only way we can have freedom and life and peace and joy and understanding in this Christian walk is open our heart and give it to all of it. Matthew didn't halfway accept the Lord. Matthew opened up his heart to the Lord. As I said, he was a native of Capernaum. Capernaum already turned down the Lord. He was a well-known businessman in the city. His old friends probably persecuted him for following Jesus, laughed at him. And only that, if Matthew went home that night to Sister Matthew, where's the paycheck? Well, honey... I don't have a job anymore. Why? I'm following Jesus. You're what? You're following Jesus. How are we going to live? How are we going to make it? I don't know what the conversation might have been, but he left it all to follow Jesus. And brothers and sisters, when we have a job that's making money, and he says, lay it down, we have a choice. Do I lay it down or do I trust him? If there are things that we like to do even now that may not be sinful, but when the Lord speaks to your heart and says, it's time to pray, you say, well, let me finish this TV program. Is our hearts open or are they closed? When the Lord lays upon you, it's time to read the Bible. I want to call, call you away, beloved. I want some time with you. Not now, Lord, I'm tired. I'll get you tomorrow. Is our hearts open or are they closed? When I was at Southeastern my first semester, I was 21 years old and I went to college. Most people were, at 21 were graduating. But I went, I was out of high school four years. I went to college and I struggled with reading, comprehension. I mean, I, I never received a high school education. I was exposed to one, if you know what I mean. And I struggled. And my GPA my first semester with 12 credit hours was a 1.9. That's bad. And I was losing out with God. I had no time to pray. I had no time to read the Bible. I, my prayer would be consisting of 8 in the morning, walking to class, praying on the sidewalk. And my, my Bible study was at night. I'd read it and go to bed. I was losing it. And I said, God, I've not come to this school to backslide. I've come to draw close to you. You're getting the first hour of my day, and you're getting the second hour of my day, the last hour of my day. And I spent the first hour, 6.30 to 7.30 in the morning, or 6 to 7, I can't remember, and at night from 10 to 11, because that was curfew. My GPA went up. I took on more credit hours, and I had a relationship with God. They went on freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, and then my senior year. I was doing the same thing. But one night they allowed TVs in the dorms now. And the brand new movie, Rocky, came on. And it was time to go to prayer. And Rocky was up. And I'm going. And I thought, one night's not going to hurt. I'm going to watch Rocky. I broke the heart of God that night. 
is I broke my own heart. See, it's not habit, it's not ritual. I had an appointment with my father and he was there waiting on it and I didn't take it. And friend, if we're not careful, we can readily and easily, little by little, little by little, keep closing our hearts and closing our hearts and closing our hearts. But Matthew had an open heart all the time toward God. He put it all on the line to follow his Lord and his Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, he did something else. All of his friends apparently forsook him and left him. You know what he did? He not only opened up his heart, he also opened up his home. He invited all of his rowdy friends, Jew and Gentile alike, I am sure, to come to his house because Jesus had come for a banquet. He said, you know what? You all may have rejected me, but you like to eat, don't you? Man, we're putting on a barbecue this week. You come on out, and I've got, some, I got a surprise. And there was Jesus. And I got a feeling Matthew saying, you won't listen to me, but maybe you'll listen to him because he changed my life, and he'll change yours too. He not only opened up his heart, he opened up his home. And brothers and sisters, we can do the same thing. I don't know anybody that doesn't like to eat. We can bring our rowdy friends. We bring a guy to our house now and again. He's got dreadnoughts down to right here. He's been out of prison so many times, I think he's got a revolving door. But we bring him over, and we set him down, and we feed him, and we take him out sometimes. He just got out of prison again. I hadn't talked to him since he got out of prison this time. He's, only, uh, he's about the same age as my son. No mother. Mom died. His dad's dead. He has a baby out of wedlock. He's got more questions than he has answered. He's running around with all the wrong people. But if we can just show him a little love without condemning, it may be that one meal, it may be that one conversation that will change him. Open up your heart, but also open up your home to people as well. He invited as many sinners as he could to his house to meet Jesus. Now, we know normally what happens when we start doing something good in our lives. When we begin to do something good, the enemy tries to begin to mess in our life, does he not? Let me just encourage you. Pray and ask God for ways that you can emulate the life of Matthew to open up your heart and open up your home to minister to people. The Bible went on to say that even the sinners... The religious people, and that's where, most of the, that's where most of the problem comes today, is religious people persecute Christian people. You ever found it in your life? Religious people often, I read something not long ago that a man said, I'll never go with church, Christians hurt me. Hypocrites, they hurt me. To which somebody responded, I'm sorry that Christians hurt you, but Jesus never has. And there is a difference. Jesus never will. It was Jesus who identifies with your identifies with your pain. For it's Jesus who said, look at these wounds. I was wounded in the house of whom? Not my enemies, but the house of my friends. That's where Jesus was wounded. You think he was not wounded when his disciples forsook him, when Judas betrayed him, when Peter denied him? Yes, he was hurt. But he had a love that kept on going. What would Jesus say? I'm not going to die for you, raunchy bunch. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Thank God he died for us. And by the way, if a hypocrite's between you and God, the hypocrite's closer to God than you are. They even tried to bring up friction between the disciples and John the Baptist. They said, the disciples of John often fast and offer up prayers, but your disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. Trying to bring a disagreement, trying to bring disunity among the people of that hour. And Jesus explained that, hey, I didn't come for the righteous people because there isn't any righteous people. 
I've come for the publicans and I've come for the sinners. I've come for you. I've come as a physician for sick people. And that's what Jesus has always done. And that's what he said he did here. And that call went to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees and to the publicans and to all that were there. Now, not only did Matthew open his heart in his home, but he also opened up his hands and he began to work for Jesus Christ. Someone said that when Matthew left his job, he probably left the tax department, but he took his pen with him. And because he took that pen with him, now this basically ex-publican, ex-tax collector, ex-sinner, he placed himself in the hands of God. And rather than balancing numbers on a book, he was now inspired of the Holy Spirit that moved upon him, that he penned one of the most powerful gospels that we have in that of Matthew. God can take our past and use it in our present. God can take our mess and make it our message. And God can take our pain and put pen to paper and share a story that can rock the world. I'm sure that when Matthew obeyed the Lord, when he said, follow me, and Matthew left his stand and he began to follow the Lord, I don't believe for a moment that Matthew ever dreamt that God would use him the way that he had. After all of these thousands of years, wherever you go around the world, the gospel of Matthew is read. Did you use it in India, my brother Stuart? Amen. We've used it all around the world. We're live traveling. Why? It's where you go. Uh, I believe, according to tradition, Matthew made missionary trips to the Jews who were in the despair among the Gentiles. His work was associated with Persia, Ethiopia, Syria, and some traditions even said that Matthew went as far in as Greece to proclaim the word of God. But the New Testament is silent much about his life. We don't know about it. I'll tell you this much. Matthew is dead and gone. His old body pushing up daisies and going back to the ground which it came. Wherever this gospel is preached, people turn to the gospel of Matthew. I'm here to tell you, friend, your life is not over. And you may say, I can't be used of God. God takes your life and he takes mine. And if we give it to him, he can make a whole lot out of a little bit. That's along the way. So once again, he penned this great book, The Gospel According to Matthew. Next week, I hope you'll come back. I hope it wasn't too boring. But I just want to set a stage for next week. I want to talk about some of the genealogy. I'm not going to read them. I just want to talk about it. To understand just how important the genealogy of Christ really was. To my knowledge, Jesus is the only Jewish person that has any historical proof that he is the only one in line for the throne of David. You know why I say that? Because all the history books were burned in 70 A.D. when the destruction of Rome came, when Rome came and destroyed it. All the history books were gone. But we got one right here that says Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. That's important. It's important for all of us as well. I, I, I want to close with, with this. I, I don't know how to say it except just say it. I, I've said through the years when I look up my family tree, I'm just a sap in it. But I have gone a little digging and found out that some of my roots where they come from. And as many of you know, I've taken about seven trips to Spain, the northern part of Spain, and Bilbao and areas, Bay of Biscay. I've spent several, years, several times trips to Africa, three months at a stench at the same place in Africa, I've gone a lot over into uh, Romania and, and Ukraine, those areas. So looking up my family tree, I found out, and it, it spit it out there, 
and, and it said that some of my roots are in that Bosque country in Bilbao area. Some of my roots are even in Africa. And some of my heredity is in those areas where I've traveled. I think that's so neat. I had no earthly idea of knowing that. But that's where my heart has been with missions for the last umpteen years of my life. Only to find out that's where some of my heredity comes from. What am I saying? God knows where we are in our life. And he knows how he can form and make us. And our lives can become a powerhouse. So open up your heart to the Lord. Open up your home to the Lord. Open up your hands to the Lord. And let him use you in this last day like he's never used you before. Because, friends, we're running out of time and we all know that. 